This is a podcast from Minute Media. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, last episode, Jason and I talked about what we were doing summer of 86. Jason, do you know what David Coverdale was doing summer of 86? David Coverdale was pushing his broken-down white Jaguar (laughs) out of the middle of an intersection in Los Angeles. He had $5 to his name and a condom in his wallet, and that's it. He was on his first date with a lady he would later marry, who at the time had no idea who he was or who Whitesnake was. Yes, the lovely, iconic Tawny Katane. Okay, everybody, we are here for the beginning of our Summer of 87 series. Yeah, we're going to spend about, I don't know, six or seven weeks in the summer of 1987. I love the summer of 1987. I can remember MTV and going down to the pool and checking out the girls whose clothes seemed to fit a lot better to me at that age. (laughs) All right, Dee, I know you're a golfer. Sure. When you hit the ball and it goes in the rough, it's hard to see. It is so hard to find. It's not cool when it's in the rough. Nobody wants a bunch of rough around their You ball. want it in the fairway. Yeah. And you want it cleaned up so you can see the ball at all times. Right. The smoother it is, the easier it is to see. That reminds me of our sponsor, Manscaped.com. Oh, yeah. Manscaped.com. They have got incredibly good products. They've sent us some, and we're both totally amazed by what they can do. We've tried the Weed Whacker. We've tried the lawnmower. They've got some great stuff over there at Manscaped.com. You know, if you feel a little bit nervous about getting clippers underneath, say, you know, the Adam's apple, hey, that's okay. They've got products to clean up that nose hair, which, I mean, I know you guys have talked to people with the nose hair that's just dangling out of the nose, and it's an absolute distraction. Don't be one of those guys. They've got the weed whacker that'll help you out with that, and then once you feel secure about how awesome these products are, you can feel a little more comfortable about heading south of the border and taking care of the unsightly rough that is hiding your balls. Take care of your rough, fellas. It's just the right thing to do. Head over to manscaped.com, use the promo code SERIOUS20, and you'll save 20% on all the products. Guys, don't forget, it's easier to see a giraffe on the plane than it is in the forest. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's really- Summer of 1987 was 35 years ago, D. It's hard oh, to believe gosh. it's been that long. I feel like an old so, man. Here's what we've got on the docket coming up, okay? Okay. So we've got a history of Whitesnake. Mm-hmm. Then we're going to go track by track through Whitesnake's 1987 album, probably their best known album. Yep. Then we're going to do Motley Crue's Girls, Girls, Girls. These two bands toured together on the same bill. I was not allowed to go. That was... Uh, Shocker. Yeah. Parents <laughs> said no to that one. Uh, and then after that, we're going to do Robocop versus Predator. Okay. Two awesome summer blockbusters. And then we're going to get together with the guys from the Film By podcast, and we are going to break down Superman 4 versus Jaws the Revenge. Both came out the summer of 87. They were the highlight of the summer, too. (laughs) Some of the worst movies of the 80s. Yep. So before we get going on this episode, speaking of guest hosts, we have a new executive producer, Mr. David Wright, who you will, listener, remember from our Raising Hell versus Licensed to Ill combo. It was an incredible four-parter with Dave's help. I mean, Dave was like 
Professor Easy Rock right there. I wonder how he's going to feel about being the executive producer on a hair metal album. (laughs) (laughs) Dave, thank you very much. Dave's a good friend of ours. Dave, we appreciate it. Uh, He texted us this week and said, oh no, I've done a thing. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, if you would like to be an executive producer of our episodes, be sure and check out our Patreon page. It's patreon.com slash Shirley Podcast. That's S-U-R-E-L-Y Shirley Podcast. And for as little as $5 a month, you can be an executive producer. And it goes up from there and we start giving out gifts when you're given large donations. So please check that out. If you don't have time for that, be sure and leave us a five-star rating. And if you give us a review that has something like Here I Go Again or Still the Night or Is This Love or Black and White Jaguar, then you will be entered into a contest to win an awesome engraved Ozarka Tumblr. By the way, Patreons now receive bonus episodes. We're going to do these mini episodes once a month covering one-hit wonders, and it's going to be awesome, and it's a little added bonus for, for all the Patreons out there. It's going to be awesome. Okay, guy, let's jump into the history of Whitesnake. History of Whitesnake. Well, as you might imagine, we got to start with David Coverdale. I don't know where I'm going Yes, he's the only constant in White Snake over the years. He is. Now, he was born in 51. He was with a few bands when he became a teenager. He was with a band called Vintage 67 in 66 and 68. He was in The Government through 72. And then he was with a band called The Fabulosa Brothers in 72 and 73. (laughs) And then in 1973, he's reading his Melody Maker magazine, and he sees an article that says... Deep Purple is auditioning singers because Ian Gillian has left the band. That's incredible. So when he was with the government, they and Deep Purple had shared the same bill. And so he was like, oh, I know those guys and I would love to sing for that band. So he sends in a tape and a little later on they audition him. And in 1973, he becomes the lead singer of Deep Purple. selling shoes he goes from shoe salesman to lead singer of deep purple at 22 years old that's pretty impressive pretty good step up right there. i mean and if you don't know deep purple you probably know my woman from tokyo or the infamous famous smoke on the water smoke on the water for right. sure yeah but david coverdale came along after those songs but he was still a good singer for the band in 74 they came out with burn which went gold yep they played at the california jam in front of 200,000 fans they had another album that year called stormbringer that also was gold and then in 75 richie blackmore the guitarist leaves mm-hmm. and if you've got your original lead singer gone and your lead guitarist you probably have lost what would most would consider the heart of the band but david coverdale pleads with the other members of the band and he's like i know this american guitarist named Tommy Bolin, I think he can bring us back to where we need to be. And so with Tommy Bolin, they came out with Come Taste the Band in 1975. (laughs) There is no sexual connotation with that, I'm quite sure. Oh my goodness. (laughs) 
1976, they had kind of a lackluster tour because that that album was not re- well received. And by the end of 76, end of the tour, Coverdale walks off the stage in tears and resigns from the band. But he was told there was no band to resign from. Yeah, it, it was over at that point. Yeah, the other band members had decided... Well before, we're not going to be banned after this. They just didn't tell David. Yeah. So what he did in 1977 is he released a solo album. And that solo album was called White Snake. Now, I wonder why he called it White Snake. Do you happen to know this, Jason? I do know this. Uh, hit me. Hit okay. me with it. You don't know why it's called White No, I have no idea. Tell me. Well, here's what he has said. Okay. Okay. <laughs> this band name is named after his own penis. I expected that that was what the answer was. Like, I've always assumed that that's what the answer was, but thank you for confirming. I appreciate that. So in 78, he had another solo album called North Winds, and then shortly after that, he puts together the band that would be White Snake. Now, other than, unlike the album, White Snake is combined to be one word, and he puts together this band with Mickey Moody and Bernie Marston. Yes. Bernie Marston is important. You know why? Bernie Marston is the guy who helps him write the song Here I Go Again. Yep. And also Fool for Your Lovin'. Oh. So several hits for Whitesnake in their early days are Bernie Marston influenced. And they their first album is an EP called the Snake Bite EP. Uh-huh. So I wonder what Snake Bite would mean in that scenario. I'm not Don't sure. Know? No. All right. And at this point, i got to pass it to my friend. I'm fading back. I'm doing the long pass. Can you tell me the discography of Whitesnake from then on? Okay, yes, I can. And follow with me the chart history for these, okay? Okay. You can watch the success start to happen. Okay. So in 1978, like you said, they have their first album come out as Whitesnake, and it's called Trouble. It goes to number 50 in the UK. Okay. Not bad. Yeah. Did it chart in the U.S.? No, it did not. Okay. No, it did not. All right. Yeah. Then in 1979, you have the the album that comes out. It's called Love Hunter. Uh-huh. That goes to number 29 in the UK. Did it chart in the US? No, it did not. Okay. Then in 1980, you have an album called Ready and Willing. This goes to number six in the UK. Did it chart in the US? It did. All right. Number 90 in the US. Wow, okay? 90. Now, this one is a little bit of note because it has the song Fool for Your Love. That song was re-released the fall of 1989. It was a big hit for them on the Slip of the Tongue album. Yep. Trying to kind of redo the success of 87. Right. All right. Then in 1981, they have an album called Come and Get It. It goes to number two in the UK. It does not chart in the U.S. Oh, you anticipated my question there. Yes. And at this point, they're financially in debt. Okay. They're selling albums, uh-huh. but they are going lower and lower into debt. Okay. Yeah. Albums cost money. They, they do. Yeah. They do. And tours cost money. All right. Now then, stay with me. In 1982, they released the album called Saints and Sinners. Okay. On this album, you have the song, Here I Go Again, hmm? and Crying in the Rain. Okay. Okay. 
They sound bluesier right. and not as tight. Definitely not okay. as tight. And we're going to talk about what John Collodner thought about these. Yeah. But this goes to number nine in the UK, does not chart in the US. Okay. And at this point now, we need to segue into the story of John Collodner. Okay. So John Collodner started as a photographer and a writer. He was doing, he was going to concerts and taking pictures and writing music articles for different magazines. And then he gets hired for Atlantic Records to do the same thing. Okay. And one day they're having a big meeting and the president of Atlantic Records says, okay, I need an A&R guy. And Kalodner's like, I would like to be the A&R guy, please. Can I please do that job? So John Kalodner says, well, I'm actually really good at figuring out what's going to be a hit song and what's not going to be a hit song. Right. And the president is like, okay, I'm going to let you give it a try, but you've got to bring your own tape player. You've got to bring your own (laughs) reel-to-reel. And you've got to listen to every cassette that gets submitted. And he's like, okay. He did not listen to every cassette that got submitted because he they would, I mean, just think about it. People are sending in demos, multiple sources all day long. So he, his little filter system was he would pick the ones from music attorneys. He figured if the band was savvy enough to get an attorney that they were probably going to have a decent product. And if the attorney was impressed enough that he's sending it on, then it probably is another indicator that it's good. And so that's how he discovered a lot of his folks. That's interesting. And so then he does that for a while for Atlantic Records. He continues to kind of freelance on the weekends doing the photography and the writing for those journals. Then in 1980, he gets a call from Mr. David Geffen to come join him and be the Geffen Records A&R man. Yes. Now, do you know what A&R stands for? Yes. (laughs) Only because we Googled it about 10 minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I just we we came in today and and we're like, Clodner's an AR. What does A and R stand for? What it what is it? Okay, guest, do you know? Would you like to venture your guest now? What is A and R? Okay, good guess. Here's the real answer. A and R means artists and repertoire. Uh huh. His job was to find new artists and acquire them for the label. Right. So he is the A and R man for Geffen Records. Yes. When he walks in the door, he says, "Mr. Geffen, thanks for the hire. I think that we should hire Sammy Hagar. Yep. I think that we should hire Phil Collins. Yep. And I, I'm excited to work with Aerosmith. Yes. And Geffen's like, I like those suggestions, but we're not going with Phil Collins. We're going with Peter Gabriel. Um, sir, I think that Phil Collins is going to be better. Nope, we're going to go with Peter Gabriel. It's hard to blame Geffen too much on that because Peter Gabriel did have some success in the 80s. I mean, very much success. Yeah, well, he kept Danger Zone out of the top spot. Yes, he did. Which is a miracle in and of itself. We talked about that last week. But my gosh, Phil Collins had a humongous 1980s and 90s for that matter. I was going to tell you... I recognize John Kalodner. Uh-huh. Once we started looking into this and when I Googled him and I looked at his face, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's the guy from the Aerosmith videos. <laughs> right. He, he was- had a lot to do with Aerosmith's rebirth in like 1987, the Permanent Vacation Tour. Yeah, go back and check out our Aerosmith episode. We talk about how Tim Collins, is that his name? The guy that kind of helped them get off drugs? Yeah, that's right. Kalodner was another major factor in that process of getting those guys clean. Kalodner is the guy dressed in a wedding dress in the Dude Looks Like a Lady video. Now everybody knows who we're talking about. That big, long, scraggly beard. <laughs> it's kind of a weird-looking dude. Yeah, especially in a wedding dress. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, so Kalodner ultimately, around 82, hears this album that Whitesnake has put out that has these songs on it, including Here I Go Again, and he thinks to himself, this is a hit song. He calls David Coverdale. He's like, you got a hit song. But it was badly recorded and it was badly played. Like 
is lonely in the night. Yes. You need a better band, you got a mediocre band, and you need a better producer. Yeah. He's a nice guy, he's not a good producer. Yep. So, he hooks David Coverdale up with a new guy and gets rid of everybody else. Yeah. These are all like his best friends. Mm-hmm. Gotta let him go, dude. Yeah. If you want to make it to the big time, you gotta dump all these guys. So, Kaladner has this guy who he's seen playing with Thin Lizzy. And his name is John Sykes. Yes. John had been with Thin Lizzy and another band, but he had a good look and he had a great ability with music and lyrics. And so he thought, I'm going to get this guy together with Coverdale and we're going to have the magic duo just like Bon Jovi. John Sykes is like a guitar god. Yeah, he's, he is an exceptional guitarist, and he just has... I mean, there are guys who play well, there are guys who write good music, and there are guys who play well and write good music, and John Sykes is one of them. And he is a huge, huge factor on why this album is so good. Yes. Which is interesting, given what we find out later on. Yes. So the producer that John Kalodner says we need to have come in is this guy named Mike Stone. Now, Mike Stone is another icon in the field. Kalodner, is not, he does not pick losers, right? Right. So he picks up this guy named Mike Stone, who had gotten his start as an assistant engineer in Abbey Road Studios working with the Beatles. So not a bad out-of-the-gate start, Pretty right? good start, yeah. Yeah. So he goes on to work with Foreigner on multiple albums, Journey on multiple albums, Asia on multiple albums hey. and Queen on multiple albums and hold on for the for the big hit. Ready? Yeah. He was the engineer behind Bohemian Rhapsody. That's incredible. Mike Stone, I do think it's interesting that anytime Kalodner brings him up, yeah. he's like, genius drinker. Yeah. Well, you know. he died from drinking, so yeah. Yeah, a bit of a drinker, which is tragic because yes. he was an, an amazing sound engineer. So apparently with Mike Stone and John Sykes, they lay down some amazing tracks, but then we started running into some trouble. Yeah. So let's back up for a second. So in 1984, Coverdale and Sykes come out with an album called Slide It In. Right. Are you familiar with Slide It In? A little bit. Okay. I feel like I'm one of the first people that I knew that was familiar with Whitesnake because there was a guy on my bus who had, in 1986... My school bus. On my school bus, he had a Walkman tape player, and he would listen to Slide It In all the time. It's like a scene out of a movie, man. Right? And so he would let me listen, and we would listen to Slide It In and Slow and Easy and Love Ain't No Stranger. So I was... Can you just say Slow and Easy again? Slow and Easy. Let's listen to it real quick. freaking love that song dude that's such a good song it's awesome (laughs) hey quick quick side story about slide it in yeah a few years ago my wife made a video to be played in church regarding a women's retreat that she had just attended okay and this is kind of funny because i know some women in my church listen to this podcast but (laughs) while she wasn't looking i replaced the you know the zoe girl musical track with slide it in And it became the funniest thing we ever watched. 
<laughs> so the next day when we played it in church, I checked it about 15 times to make sure that I had corrected that. Uh... Please don't be the slighted in. Please don't be the slighted in version. <laughs> oh my gosh. Uh, that would have been a much better story. Had it been, but... I, I uh, was not about to let that happen. Anyway, so I loved slighted in. Great album. And that's with Sykes, okay? Now, in 1984, that actually makes it to number 40 in the U.S. Uh-huh. They've got some videos, they've got some momentum, but they still haven't broken through in the U.S. Poised for success. Poised for success. So, Kalodner's like, you guys, go to the south of France, write your follow-up. This is spring of 1985. Right. Go write some songs. Let's get this album pumped out. It's time. 1985, we're going to take America by storm. The iron is hot. Strike it now. Let's 1985. go. 1985. Right. So with Mike Stone, they lay down these tracks, right? And the music is great. You've got John Sykes playing guitar, who, as you mentioned, Thunder is genius. God. Yep. So they've got Mike Stone, and they've got the band. Now, the band is a little bit different than it was for Slide It In, right? Yeah, it's definitely different. Coverdale basically fired everybody, was persuaded... Uh-huh. To keep Sykes and Neil Murray. Right. Now, I mean, Sykes he went had, to Geffen and said, I want to fire everybody. Sykes had come in to take over for Mickey Moody, who had left, right? On Slide It In. That's correct. And then who was the drummer? You had Cozy Powell. Okay. Which is a very well-respected drummer. And in fact, Coverdale actually has said the 1987 album was written with Cozy Powell's drum beats in mind. Uh-huh. Made him an offer, which he thought was fair. Cozy uh-huh. Powell thought... it was no good so he said screw you i'm going home screw you guys i'm out of here and coverdale said sadly that cost him millions of dollars well yeah i mean if he was offering him a percentage plus a salary sure yeah i mean but again i can see how in that position you'd be like well i don't really know you have no idea that the 1987 album is going to be the success that it is we just finished up our most successful album we've ever had and we're three million bucks in debt Yeah. So yeah. so part of the, the debt that we're going to talk about later on is due to the production of this album, That's right? True. Of the 1987 album. Right. But so they replace Cozy Powell with Journey drummer Ainsley Dunbar. Yes. That's not too that's not a bad trade. Yes. I mean Ainsley Dunbar is is pretty freaking awesome, honestly. By the way, yeah. something I didn't know about Ainsley Dunbar, which James Buckley, our Shirley friend, pointed out to me. Number one Patreon subscriber, Mr. Buckley. We love we love James. He's a Frank Zappa guy. Go back to our Toto episode where Steve Lukather tried to join the Zappa band right, and was humiliated in front of everybody and you right. know, scared off and all that stuff. Yeah, James Buckley was just telling me that he admired Ainsley Dunbar and was a former Zappa guy. Right. So James Buckley is a drummer for a band. Hidden Tracks. Hidden Tracks, yes. Shout out to Hidden Tracks. <laughs> Go see them at your local area bowling alley or whatever. <laughs> are they playing at bowling alley? I, I, I don't, don't know. Remember. James, we if, really if want to come are, watch you play. If you were in Monroe, is it West Monroe or is it Monroe? It's Monroe. He was he played in Shreveport the other day. Oh, nice. So he's all over the place down in Louisiana. I told him when he makes it to Dallas, we'll be there. <laughs> <laughs> You just gather all that equipment, move over, and we'll take a two-hour air-conditioned ride down to see you. Let's go. (laughs) 
Okay, so for the 87 album, we've got Mike Stone engineering. We've got John Sykes on the guitar. Yep. We got Neil Murray on bass. Yep. Who is a carryover. Yes. We've got Ainsley Dunsbar on drums, who, again, great drummer, but not the drummer that they had had in mind when they made the album. Right. And they laid down some great musical tracks. Yes. And then all that's left to do is put down the vocal tracks. Hey, that sounds pretty easy, right? Right. I mean, we've got the guy who's been singing for the last 20 years and, you know, used to sing for Deep Purple and is now, you know, steadily moving up in popularity in the UK. Now in the U.S. And so, David, what do you got? Dave cannot sing. He can't sing. <laughs> he can't. This this is the story. Okay? okay. He starts to lay down the vocals, uh-huh. and he notices that his voice is unusually nasally. Huh? That's weird. It's just stuck in his bass. Yeah. And he's off pitch. Uh huh. Uh huh. So he's like, something's wrong with the studio. We got to change studios, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So they move from Vancouver to the Bahamas, where they're going to lay down the vocals. Better studio there, sure. I work better in the Bahamas, personally. Well, hey, it it worked for ACDC, right? And the police, right? Yeah, yeah. Or is that Jamaica? I can't remember. I mean Caribbean. Caribbean, right? It's all the same. (laughs) (laughs) I work better in the Caribbean as well. Yeah, me too. We should move the Shirley Studios down to the Caribbean just so that we sound a little bit better. (laughs) need a few more Patreons. (laughs) But it's just not working for him, right? Right. So he goes and sees a doctor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, John Kaladner's like, okay, they're in California now. You know, right. Just down the street is Sugarman. He is the greatest ENT in the world. Uh-huh. Let's go see what he has to say. He needs an operation for his septum. Septum. So anytime you say rock and roll and septum, you're either going to talk about a nose job or you're going to talk about the white powder. David Coverdale says every time he mentioned his nasal surgery, uh-huh. millions of people made invisible spooning <laughs> motions to their nose. And yeah. he swears that's not the case. Yeah. But I don't believe it. Hey, man, I'm it was not going to call the guy a liar. I don't know him. Okay. Okay, but yeah, he is in a he is in a hard rock band in the middle of the '80s. Right. It was kind of the thing to do. Okay. So he gets his nasal surgery and still is taking a while to get something. Six done. months of rehab. John Claudner talks about this, and he's really like uh, he doesn't outright say it, but you can tell he think it's he thinks it's psychological. Yeah, and so does Sykes. Yeah, that being that, what it is, you know, psychological, whether that's a valid excuse or not, is an entirely separate story. But the case is, the man is not singing the songs. Right. So what's John Sykes doing? So John Sykes is like, he knows what he's got, right? I've got 12 fantastic songs. Yeah. He goes to Mike Stone, who he has a good relationship with. Mm -hmm. He's like, we might need to find ourselves a new singer. We might need to fire David Coverdale from Whitesnake. Right. And that's not okay. David Coverdale does not like that idea at all. Well, I mean, let's just be real here. He's the only guy who's been consistently in the band. I mean, the band's original name was David Coverdale and Whitesnake. It was named after David Coverdale's Johnson. <laughs> his jo- I thought you were going to say his first album. You mean my Johnson? We cut off your Johnson. Yeah, so so the idea of removing him from the band, it's kind of like trying to kick Bon Jovi out of Bon Jovi. That's right. That's right. It really is. <laughs> I mean, you can't have the Bon Jovi without the John. That's right. Right? Yes. And you can't have the White Snake without the Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> 
So here's what happens. Tell me. So he has the surgery, goes through six months of rehab. This whole time, Geffen is losing money. Yeah. And the band has zero income during this time. Yeah, John Kalodner says 1986 was the only year in the 80s that he did not have a hit to his name. Um, John Kalodner. Yes. Because he's got Aerosmith. He's got all these other bands. But Aerosmith he's is... He's cleaning them up. Deep in rehab. Yep. And David Coverdale is silent. Yes. It's it's incredible. By the way, I want to throw this quick in real quick. Yeah. John Kalodner had a hand in getting Berlin on the Top Gun soundtrack. So Ladies and gentlemen, we tie everything back to any prior episode that we can, but this is a good one. This is last episode, Berlin, who sang Take My Breath Away. Now, my story was that when Giorgio Moroder came in and said, Terry Nunn, I want you to sing this song, she was like, yes, please. But you're saying it took some convincing. Kaladner said that he went to her and he's like, hey, I think you really need to do this. Well. And she's like, I, and he was the one who's like, no, you got to do this. Okay. Kind of interesting, different take. Again, you everybody's got a different perspective on how things go in the past. Right. So 1986 is rolling. Geffen's losing money. They're losing patience. John Sykes is losing patience. John Kaladner's losing patience. John Kaladner's like, they might fire me. Like, if oh, Coverdale yeah. doesn't release this album, I might get fired. And I'm the one who said, this guy's a superstar. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Sykes is going, we've got a great album here. Yeah. We've got to release this or fire him. So Coverdale works his way through the rehab. Yeah. He even admits he had a mental block. Yeah. And he, they change producers. Like he wasn't working well with Mike Stone. He's not working well with Mike Stone. They think, well, let's do another producer. That guy didn't work out. Eventually they get Keith Olsen in there and Keith and David Coverdale are able to work together. And finally, after two years... Two years. Right. They lay down the vocal tracks. Basically, these songs were written in 1985. Yeah. The so, iron is no longer hot. That's that's exactly right. Right. Now the model has switched to Bon Jovi, right? Right, yeah. Bon Jovi. So, Kalodner, I will say this. There are several key factors in this album. David Coverdale, obviously a factor in this album. Yes. You can't escape those vocals. Uh, yeah. John Sykes, huge. Songwriter. John Kalodner said he had absolute control of the album. Mm -hmm. He said their inspiration point was Bon Jovi and it, musically. Yep. But he was in charge of what I mean, he called John Kalodner made the call on songs, album artwork, musicians, producers, like everything was his call because he knew how to make a hit record and that was what his job was. Yes. And so he is a gigantic factor on the success of this album. You know who else is a huge factor in this? Yes, I do. And her name is Tawny Katane. I saw her described in print uh -huh. as having a honey-drenched million-dollar ass. <laughs> and you know what? They were wrong. I can't fault that. That's <laughs> not an inaccurate description. Okay, so let's talk Tawny Katane for just a bit. Uh, yeah, we have to. Okay, so... Tawny Katane had a boyfriend in yes. high school. Yeah, Robin Crosby of Rat. Yeah. So Robin Crosby, I think we might have touched a little bit on him in our Motley Crue episode. Mm -hmm. Close friends with Nikki Six. Right. Big factor in Rat. Tawny Katane and he were boyfriend-girlfriend in high school. Birthdays a day apart. She ends up leaving him for a guy named Pete Angelis. That's right. And Pete Angelis did the lights for Van Halen. So she leaves the guy who's going to be a star in Rat to get the lighting guy for Van Halen. Well, I don't know if that's a fair trade or not, but then the lighting guy becomes the manager 
for Van Halen. And that ends up being a pretty good deal. Right. And so one night, they have to, you know, she's with the rest of the guys. She went on tour with them. She was on the bus. She lived the 1984 Van Halen party life. Yes. And she's on the bus with these guys. And they're going to different hotels and stuff. And, you know, when they're you're as famous as they are, you have to leave through the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And so one night she is walking out with Pete behind Eddie and Valerie. And she says to herself, someday that's going to be me with the leader of the band up there instead of, you know, this guy. That's exactly right. And if that thought goes through your head, you probably shouldn't still be dating the guy. <laughs> Not but, this chump standing next to me. Right. So a little bit later on, she is in a restaurant. She had gone down to L.A. She had started working in movies. She was the fiance in Bachelor, Bachelor Party, Party with Tom Hanks. Yeah. So she's already making a name for herself. Hey, listen. Yeah. I'm going to stop you right there. Okay. Bachelor Party was a naughty guilty pleasure for me and my buddies back in the day. It's funny. It's, you know, boob lined. I want you to sleep with me. (laughs) I want you to sleep with me. That was like the epitome of comedy (laughs) slash naughtiness in our little 11-year-old self. Plus... In 1986, she did kind of an 80s off-the-beat classic Witchboard. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, she's in L.A. having a drink with a friend, and the friend is like, hey, there's a couple of cute, long-haired guys back there behind you. Uh-huh. And so, she's kind of eyeing them a little bit, and so she gets up to go to the bathroom, and the first one kind of stops her early on. It's like, hey, would you like to sit down and have a drink with me and my friend? And she's like, well, no, I don't drink, so... That's okay, thanks. And she keeps on going, and then she gets up to the top of the stairs, and there's David Coverdale, and he says, Excuse me, would you care to have a spot of tea with me and my friend? And she was like, a spot of tea? Well, yes, that sounds very nice. Yep. Is this love that I'm so that's the introduction. Yep. So he asks her out for a proper date. Yes. Shows up in a white jag. Okay, yep. this seems like a good sign, right? Hey, we're, here we go. He's wearing a suit. This is the same blue suit that he wears in the Here I Go Again video. And the same white jag. That's exactly right. <laughs> so she's like, okay. She's impressed. Yeah. And so she gets in and she's like, so, you know, what What do you do? And he's like, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a singer and we've been working on this album. And she's like, oh, and he's and she says, "What's the name of your band?" He says, "White Snake." She's never heard of him. Right. She's and, toured the world with Van Halen. She's run around with Rat. She knows the rock and roll scene. And she doesn't know who White Snake is. Never heard of you. Right. And then he's like, "We've been working on an album. Let me put the tape in." And so she he sticks it in, and she's looking out the window like, "Oh, great! <laughs> I am with some loser who doesn't have any idea that he's never going to make it in the music business." And then the car breaks down. <laughs> In the middle of the road. So, David, imagine this. David Coverdale in the blue, shiny suit, pushing a Jaguar onto the median as smoke plumes from the hood. (laughs) Hey, don't worry. Two years from now, we're going to be in a video with this suit and this Jag, and we're going to make millions of dollars. It's going to change history. He didn't even have insurance on the car. That's right. And he was living in a hotel room that he couldn't check out of because he didn't have the money to pay the bill. He literally, like you said, $3 million in debt at this point that he's met Tawny Katane. This album still hasn't come out yet. Right. They're waiting. And then another key factor in the history of the White Snake album. Absolutely. Happens. John Kalodner says, there's a guy who needs to make a video for your album. And he introduces them to a guy who we've talked about before named Marty Kalner. Yes. 
And you'll remember us talking about him before because I mentioned that he was the guy who started the Hard Knocks series on HBO. Oh my gosh, Hard Knocks. Right. So at the time, that's all I knew about him. But now I've got a whole story. So here's the story on Marty Culler. When he's a little kid, two years old, his mom and dad get divorced. His dad leaves mom home alone to take care of the kids. She has to work three jobs. The dad doesn't support them. They live in like lower middle class, you know, Picking up the picking up the sweet and lows, so you have sweetener at the house, mismatched furniture, Kmart art on the walls, right, right? Right. Until he's about ten years old, and then his dad dies. His dad's family says, "Oh my gosh, he's the only Colner male heir left." And it turns out they are like bajillionaires. What? Yes. So the Colner family is a huge family in Chicago. Like there's a Colner building in Chicago. Whoa. The dad never supported them, but. He had the decency to die before the kid was fully grown. And so the family starts taking him up to Chicago. He gets picked up by a limousine. Like he's wearing his little league baseball uniform. Gets picked up by a limousine, taken to the nicest hotel in town. They have a penthouse suite up there. They have Monet's and Picasso's, like the real thing. Not even a print, but like the real art on the wall. And they spend the next eight years of his life culturing him each summer so he spends half of his time in the you know make it on your own in the right low low income area to i'm in the finest of the fine and he says so that is how i developed my eye for what is beautiful because i could tell the difference between the kmart pictures and the picassos uh-huh and so that's how i was able to develop this eye as a director and so he goes to college. He has a lot of W's. He spends about five years in college. I don't think he graduates. Okay, all right. He gets done with college, had himself a little uh, trip experience that left him a little weird for about three months. But he gets out of college and has no real prospects at all. And his mom works for TV Guide. Okay. She's like a local distributor to TV Guide. And she says, if I call one of these TV studios, will you, would you take a job? He's like, okay, sure. Yeah, whatever. Right. And so... His first night in the studio, in the TV studio, he's in the newsroom and there's been this big wreck and people are running around to get the full story on it and it seems exciting. So he's excited about that. And so he starts talking to the other directors. They got about seven directors on the staff at this TV studio. Okay. And they're showing him, you know, with coat hangers as frames for TV shots, how to do TV shots like this. And he starts working for the show, The Nick Clooney Show. Have you heard of this? No. Okay. Well, Nick's son, about seven at the time, was running around. His name was George. I've heard of George. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So that's where Marty Colner is getting his start. Young 20s guy in the Nick Clooney show. And then he gets his directing break when he's the only guy there. And the director who actually knows something has to run because there's an accident. And so he's given the reins and he pulls it off and suddenly he's making more money because, hey, it turns out he can actually direct. Well, then he gets a call a little bit later on, two job offers. Okay. One is 85000 to work for this pretty well-known TV studio. Okay. And the other one's $35,000 for this much lesser known TV studio. This is mid-70s. Yeah. <laughs> but they said... We'll give you a lot of artistic license. You will really kind of be the guy who designs what this TV studio is going to be about. Uh Uh-huh. He goes, okay, what's the name of the studio? And they said, we're calling it HBO. (laughs) It's called Home Box Office. Yeah. And so this little-known studio 
becomes the artistic outlet for Marty Kallner. He's responsible for the music that everybody associates with HBO. Thought we gotta play that right here. So. He didn't play it, he commissioned it, but I mean, it was him. He was the guy. He was the guy for HBO, and he's still trying to do some directing, and he directs, he decides what I want to do. He loves comedy. I want to direct a comedy stand-up show. Okay. And so it's Robert Klein is his first show. He, yeah. He does not do it right. He's not used to these type of shows where you're filming live. He says it ends up looking horrible. You know, the angles, Robert Klein's hands look gigantic. You know, he's just filming it like he would a TV show and he's using real cameras. It just doesn't make any sense. And so he thinks, great, I'm going to get fired. I'm going to get fired from this job. Right. And he almost does until the next day when there's a review in the New York Times Magazine that says this is one of the best specials HBO has ever produced. And overnight, he goes from 35000 to 350000 <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Okay. So, so, he's sitting in bed one night. He's done some videos. He's done a few music, music videos with Laura Branigan, among others. Okay. Lots of comedy specials. He's sitting in bed one night, and he sees a video by our friend Russell McCahey. Uh-huh. Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Clark. He sees that video and he's like, holy cow, this guy is breaking all the rules. Our man, Russell McKay. Russell McKay, he has had so much influence on so many things in the 80s. It's crazy. Yep. So he sees that and he says to his wife, I want to quit my job and I want to make music videos. And she's and she's like, what? He's like, I know. We live in a really nice house and I make whole lots of money, but I need to go do this. And she said, I'll live in the desert in a one-room house with you if you're happy. Oh, what a woman. Yep. What a woman. So he goes and inquires with friends and one of them says, okay, I got three bands that you could do a video for. First one's out of Australia named NXS. I'm sorry, Inks? <laughs> Who is this? Pronounced NXS. <laughs> The other one is out of New Orleans. They're they're called Zebra. Yep. And I've got this bar band that I have no idea what to do with. Oh yeah, what's their, what are they called? Twisted Sister. So yeah, everybody, Marty Kallner is the guy responsible for the, we're not going to take it, I want to rock, those amazing and iconic videos are Marty Kallner. And so fast forward just a couple of years and Marty Kallner is getting a call from John Kladner who says, I need somebody to make a video and I need you to make it cheap. We are out of money. Uh Uh-huh. So before we get to the video for Still of the Night, which we're getting to, I mean, Coverdale felt like he was dealing with a rebellion within the band. And so he went to Geffen and he's like, we're firing all these guys. They wanted to fire me from the band. I can't have these guys in my band. They're out. So as soon as Ainsley Dunbar got done with his drum parts, Ainsley, thank you. See you later. Neil Murray, you're done with your bass. Bye. And John Sykes is like, well, I could either quit or I could see it through. So I finished my guitars and then I quit. And that left 
Coverdale as the only member of Whitesnake left. So Kalodner said, all right, well, here's my chance to build my dream lineup of Whitesnake. And that's when he brings in Tommy Aldridge on drums. He brings in Adrian Vandenberg. He brings in Vivian Campbell. And he creates this band out of nothingness. Yeah. And that's what you see in the videos. Right. So the first time, I, this, is, this is monumental, everybody. Listen to this. The first time the band that probably you and Everyone you know knows is Whitesnake from MTV. The first time that those guys met each other was on the video shoot for Still of the Night. (laughs) That's crazy, man. It is nuts. And just before they were about to shoot the video, they lost their model. They lost their female girl sex symbol. You know who that was? It's the guest girl, baby. Claudia Schiffer. Claudia freaking Schiffer. Was supposed to be the girl in the White Snake video. Okay, so Claudia Schiffer, we salute you. Sha-wing. Yeah, she bails at the last minute. Marty Kallner and David Coverdale are supposed to have dinner at Marty's house that night. And so David brings his new kind of new girlfriend with him. And Marty has just gotten the call that Claudia Schiffer is out and he doesn't know what to do. And so as he opens the door, he sees David with Tawny Katane and he says, you're her. Friggin' rays from heaven. (laughs) Can you imagine? Yes. I'm who? What do you mean? Oh my gosh. You're her. We have to have you for the video shoot tomorrow. Tomorrow. And, and Coverdale's like, ah, this is kind of a new thing. I don't know if she'll... She's like, no, I'm happy to help in any way possible. I think she had a little hesitation. She was like, TV was not cool at that point. That's true. She was doing movies, and this was not even really TV. It was music videos. Maybe even <laughs> a step down from that. Yes. I'm so thankful that she changed her mind. Okay. And another thing that Marty Colner did that you're going to appreciate. Yeah. He was the one who directed the first Pee Wee Herman show. Oh, I love that one. The 1980, like, it's supposed to be a kid's show, yes. but it's really adult. Yeah, that was Marty Colner. Pee Wee Herman had done that character on stage, and he's like, we need to make a show out of this. Marty Colner directed the very first, 1980. This is well before 86, when all the other stuff I know exactly happened. which one you're talking about. Yeah. He hypnotizes a woman from the audience, <laughs> and it makes her take her clothes off. Yeah, it was... It was Definitely one we liked. All right, then. <laughs> okay, so Marty Colner has shot the first part of the video with the band. He looks at the footage, and he's like, this looks like a bunch of guys who don't know each other. Right. Who are pretending to play music that they didn't play. Yeah. And he's like, I need another day of shooting. He called them basically Millie Vanilli. Right, yeah. He's like, <laughs> he's like, they can play, but they weren't playing. Right. So he calls Geffen Records up, and he's like, hey, guys, I need another day of shooting. We need some, you know, maybe... Female, some sexiness. Let's get this all some done. Some intercutting. Yeah, and we, we'll intercut it with our first day of shooting. Won't cost much. I'll shoot it 16 millimeter, like 35,000. And David Giffen says, David Coverdale can go f- himself. Yeah. I mean, he. they were done. They were done. Geffen was about to go out of business. John Kalodner was about to lose his job, so he wasn't happy with him. Right. Nobody was happy with this band, but Marty says... Guys, $35,000. They said, no, we're not doing it. They can, He can rock. And so that night, Marty's like, well, sucks, because I really think this guy can make something of himself. And his wife says, well, can we afford to pay the $35,000? He's like, yeah. She goes, do you really believe in him that much? He said, yeah, I do. She's then go do it. And so it's because Marty 
Colner put up his own money to shoot that second day and where we had Tawny Katane. It's because of that that we get that video. And then, not over yet, I mean, keep in mind, at this point, David Coverdale is singing New York seltzer commercials. <laughs> I mean, let's let's listen to this. I'm not kidding. Let's listen. Now available everywhere. That sounds like a man who lives in a hotel with no car insurance. <laughs> I mean, I don't know which is worse, that one or the Hoover vacuum commercial with Brian Johnson. Singing, yeah, that's right. But these guys were obviously scraping the bottom of the barrel right before they're about to explode all over the mainstream. Marty Colner did step in and save the day for $35,000. Yes. But you know who else deserves a lot of credit? His wife. Oh, for sure. She's for the sure. unsung hero in this story. Absolutely. She's the one that says, if, it, if you feel it, if you feel it, go do it. If she had said no, yeah. he'd have been like, all right, yeah, sorry. And I- that's how we get White Snake 1987. Absolutely. Marty shoots the second day, intercuts, makes the video, and he sends it into MTV. So here's where the stars align. Yes. The video arrives at the same time that he happens to have the manager of Led Zeppelin. Phil Carson. And Phil sees the video and he says to Sam, man, Led Zeppelin would die to have a video like this. And Sam says, really? I guess I'll make it the hit clip of the week. Hip clip of the week. And in New York City, the executives at MTV, the people that work around him are like, this is not hip. (laughs) This is an old guy singing. And he's like, no, no, you're wrong. This song is hip in Iowa. He knew that the audience had grown beyond the metro of New York City, right? Yep. The other side of the street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was the were the ones buying the Duran Duran That's, albums because they had MTV. That's exactly right. And he knew that that was his audience, and he was right. There's an army of mullets out there that are waiting to hear this song this week. So, Still of the Night becomes the hip clip of the week... And suddenly, the band is world-renowned. Whitesnake goes from $3 million in debt, having five bucks and a condom in your wallet. That album sold one million records in 10 days. In 10 days. You talk about your life turning on a moment. It's incredible. Just think, if the mail had run late that day. Uh, (laughs) If Phil hadn't been in there talking to Sam, we may never have known who Whitesnake was. Yep. It saved Geffen Records. Yep. It saved David Coverdale's career. Yeah. It gave us a video vixen of the ages. Yeah. Whitesnake then opens for Motley Crue on the Girls, Girls, Girls tour. Yeah. Changes lives. Absolutely. Wow. So, 1987 means that this album is 35 years old this year. Yes. And the release date was not too long ago. That's right. You remember the date? I think it was April 7th. April 7th. And so, on April 7th, my genius friend makes a little post for Facebook and Twitter that says, Hey, this album is 35 years old today. He might have tagged David Coverdale in the tweet. <laughs> and he says, what's your favorite song? And Mr. David freaking Coverdale responds and says, all of them. That was a freaking cool moment in our Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast lives. Amazeballs. David Coverdale replied directly to my post. He likes You've, all of them. So you have had some amazing reactions to your Twitter post. You've gotten David Coverdale to respond to your White Snake post. Right. You've got Stephen... 
Steven D'Souza. D'Souza to respond to your diehard post. I haven't gotten, I don't, have I gotten anything? Kathy Ireland liked your post. Oh, yeah. Wow. <laughs> that maybe makes me the winner, I think. <laughs> yes, well done. Yeah. Well done. Yeah. So now it's time for us to go jump in the album track by track next week. Next week. <laughs> yes. So everybody, be sure and hit that subscribe button or that follow button on whatever your podcast app is so that you don't miss us going track by track through White Snake, White Snake 1987. Some amazing songs on the album that we've got so many stories to tell you. But for now, we have to go. Promise you we'll be doing cartwheels on the hoods of Jaguars. <laughs> And talking about infamous MTV nipple slips, it's going to be amazing. Come back next week. <laughs>